the wonderful cross bids us come and die and find that we will truly live, truly live because of the cross. That's our, the call that we would give ourselves fully and completely to him. That is what discipleship is. It is giving ourselves fully to follow Jesus Christ. And that discipleship takes place in a lot of different contexts. We are so blessed here in North America to celebrate and enjoy Jesus Christ and worship here this morning without any threat, without any concern. Um, but discipleship happens. We get to enjoy it with a lot of freedom and a lot of security and safety. But in other contexts, that's not the same. I encourage you to come in two weeks and hear from Alicia on what God does in and through her in the prison. That's a very different context for discipleship. And one of the things that I think we do well as a church is we support missionaries. The mission strategy team is connecting to missionaries that are across the globe doing discipleship. And one of our missionaries, the Palmers, they are in a place where they're facing increasing risk, drone strikes, missile attacks in Central Asia, but they press on. They press on doing discipleship, pursuing people. They serve in the prison ministry. They have a rock climbing ministry. And I wanna just share a note with you from them. They received that we had increased our giving this year, as y'all probably heard if you were here a few weeks ago when Rich gave the update on the missions budget. Here, here's what they say, this is amazing. This is from Christopher. I wasn't expecting an increase in giving. This increase allows us to purchase health insurance for our family. In more than 20 years of living and working overseas, we have never had health insurance before. This is a blessing to us for sure. Please express our gratitude to the rest of the team for us. I want to encourage you with that reality that we have immense freedoms here, but you are generously caring for those that do not enjoy those freedoms, but are faithfully discipling and as a father, I can only imagine the peace it brings him knowing that his children will now have health insurance. But our generosity in a culture where worshiping Christ is not made more difficult through persecution by God's kindness. Yet your generosity then is this huge blessing to them. So praise God that you're a generous church. But the darkness they consistently face creates in them an appreciation for it more deeply. The darkness they see all around, the evil around them makes them appreciate, I think, the good more so. And sometimes to appreciate the good more, you need to contrast it with the bad. It's good actually to see the wickedness of sin, not see it in person, but realize the wickedness of sin, the destructive nature of it, how impactful it is, because it makes you treasure Jesus all the more. He who's forgiven much loves much. And open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. In this context, remember that Jesus was just rejected in his hometown, and then he sends out his disciples to go, his apostles, he calls them, to go and share the good news of the kingdom. So this is this context of discipleship. For us, we have enjoyed great freedoms. The Palmers experienced very differently. But here, Mark is doing something in the way he's, what we call a Mark and sandwich, in the way he constructs his gospel. And he sent out the 12 to go preach the kingdom. He gave them authority. And now they're coming back. They're going to come back and give them a report. And in the middle, we have a sandwich. It's John the Baptist's story. 
King Herod's concerns. That's what we're going to look at. And I think the reason Mark puts it between the sending of the 12 and the receiving of the 12 is because it helps us see the nature of discipleship, the realities of the world around us, the wickedness of sin, but then the hope that we have in Jesus as we go in discipleship. The first time, there's only two places in Mark, the whole gospel that aren't really about Jesus and they're about John the Baptist. And the first time John, Mark, John the Baptist was mentioned in chapter one, it was to prepare the way for the message of the Messiah. And now he mentions John the Baptist again, and in a lot of ways, I think, to prepare the way for the death of the Messiah. They're, to show what following Jesus is truly like and what it may entail. And so we're in a context where Jesus has sent out the disciples. They're going out, they're ministering. Herod, Herod Antipas is the one we're dealing with, hears about this powerful act that's going on. And so Mark jumps into a flashback to show exactly why Herod's concerned and scared that maybe John the Baptist came back from the dead. King Herod, this Herod in this text, Herod Antipas, is the one that Jesus would call a fox. He's a wickedly cunning man. He's an extremely paranoid man. All the Herods were. He's shrewd and careless with his authority. And he would actually have a res an opportunity later in life to receive Christ in Luke 23, to hear out Jesus rightly. And Jesus will stand before him. He'll demand a sign from Jesus wanting amusement. He'll mock Jesus. He'll question Jesus. And Jesus won't say a word because I think Jesus said enough in John the Baptist. And he's not gonna cast pearls before swine. And I think what you realize in this text is that it is not safe to mess with sin. It will harden you towards Jesus. It will harden your heart. So let's take some time to look at the sinfulness of sin so that we appreciate and value the goodness and glory of Jesus all the more. We'll see that sin confuses, it condemns, it kills, it splatters. That's just a good word for sin. It splatters. But sin has an end. Sin has an end. Mark 6, 14. We'll read all the way to 30. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him, John the Baptist, and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she, Herodias, said, John... The, dead, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in 
immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Let's just pray. God, thank you for saving us from sin. Thank you for saving us from such wickedness in our lives, for ordering our lives and bringing us here together today. Lord Jesus, sustain us and direct us as we look into this debauched, wicked, sinful scene. We ask all of this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I think the first thing you see right out of the gate is that sin confuses. Sin confuses. John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, some say. As Jesus' disciples are going out, Jesus is doing this work. His disciples are doing this great work. Sin confuses. Well, maybe it's John the Baptist. No, it's Elijah. Oh, he's a prophet of old, some said. So all this confusion, all this confusion abounds. Sin, sin is definitely well described as missing the mark, departing from God's order, right? Breaking the things that God says to do or not doing the things that God tells us to do. Missing the mark, not living up to God's glory. That is true. That is what sin is. But sin leads to confusion, as you see. No one knows what's going on here because they're all confused about Jesus. The solution to confusion is found in Jesus, which none of these people see rightly. They fail to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, the miracle worker, and so they're confused constantly. It's easier for them just to deny who Jesus is and live their own way than to accept the claims of Jesus and who he really is and his actions that he's showing. It just confuses. I mean, they're, they're confused because these great works are occurring. But who's doing it, they're saying. I mean, Jesus has, written, he has raised people from the dead at this point, but John wasn't one of them. Jesus could put John's head back on and raise him in a dramatic fashion. It seems like that's an easy theory to disprove right here. Like one look at the man and the works going on would probably prove, actually, that's not John the Baptist. He's not been raised from the dead. But their unwillingness to receive Jesus makes them hold on to these fanciful, far-reaching ideas because they're confused. Anyone would have been able to tell that's not John the Baptist. But what's, what's happening? Look at verse 14. Jesus' name had become known. Jesus' name is becoming known. But failure to look to Jesus and receive him leads to confusion. And all these big radical ideas. I mean, some saying, oh, it's Elijah. You know, they're probably thinking of Malachi 4.5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Jesus will later clarify, yeah, Elijah did come and it was John the Baptist and they killed him anyway. John looked like Elijah intentionally. He lived in the desert. He ate locusts and wild honey. He wore camel's hair. These are things that reminded people of Elijah because Elijah did those things. So they were right to look for Elijah, but they were confused 
because Elijah came and pointed to Jesus. But failure to make sense of things in light of Jesus makes them hold on to sin and hold on to confusion. Some say, well, he's a prophet of old. I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure why that would change much about who he is and what he's doing. But Jesus is saying, believe in me, follow me. He told people to turn from their sin and people were trying to dismiss this. They're confused. It's kind of convenient in this case to be confused and say, well, he's just a prophet of old. You hear this probably in culture, right? Jesus was a really great teacher. Just kind of one of the many, one of old. But then that keeps you from having to deal with the claims of Jesus, that he's Lord. And then he demands all of you. So sin just confuses you from seeing reality. It's confusing you until you look to Jesus. And then when you look to Jesus and you see him rightly, he'll help make sense of life. He'll clarify your ignorance. We've all seen this in your, your own lives, haven't you? You look back on past ideas, you thought it was a good idea, only to find out later that sin had clouded your judgment immensely. I'm going to be a little open with you. There, there was a season in my engagement to Sarah that I was doubting, should I marry Sarah? Well, anyone in here that knows Sarah knows, Ryan, you definitely should marry Sarah, right? Pastor Tony, whenever I was coming out here to preach, if you have a call, he said, just send Sarah. They'll, they'll take you based on Sarah. But there was, there was some sin in my life that was leading me to confusion. I was not seeing things rightly. The obvious path forward was to marry Sarah. I'm so glad I did. And Pastor Tony's right. Y'all would have hired me based on Sarah. Uh, confusion begins to be lifted, though, when we see things right, when we see Jesus rightly. We see him in his perfect righteousness and know that to follow him is right and true and just. And until we give ourselves to him and believe that he can save us from our sin, deliver us from the evil one, we will keep seeking satisfaction in sin, which will only lead to greater confusion. But not, not to be surprised that when Jesus is on the move, confusion will occur. Confusion will abound. This is the nature of discipleship. Remember Mark's sandwiching this between the disciples going out and coming back. And so it calls for us to be clear about who Jesus is, to make it plain about who our Savior is to ourselves and others so we can avoid confusion. We can avoid uh, causing confusion. Armchair experts are plenty. Opinions abound out there. We must take people to Jesus and show them Jesus in truth, Jesus in clarity, and let Jesus pull them from their confusion. Because if these people had turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, who are you? In whose power are you doing these things? He would have told them plainly. And if they had looked at his throat, they would have known it wasn't John the Baptist. It <laughs> wasn't removed and put back on. But they chose confusion because of their sin. Jesus had shown power over sin, sickness, death, demons, storms. Confusion abounded because they wouldn't come to Jesus and receive him for who he is. We all fall in love with sin. And as long as sin remains, confusion will remain. But we also see sin condemns. Sin condemns. Herod 
this is maybe the only bit of comedy in this whole thing. Herod, in the verse, at the end of verse 14, I'm sorry, 16, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. What you need to hear in this is Herod's paranoia speaking. As A.T. Robertson said succinctly about Herod's words here, guilty fears, sums it up. Herod had some skeletons in the closet coming out to haunt him and his past sins are condemning him. He's feeling the wicked weight of his actions that he's done towards John the Baptist, which we'll look at in a minute. But look at the truth. He's feeling condemnation. Herod, Herod, whom I beheaded, has come back to life. He's, he's terrified. He's got some guilty fear here. Why? Look at what he says. There are truths he actually holds to. John the Baptist has been raised. He believes in the resurrection. He believes in the potential for a dead life to be raised again. Perhaps John taught him this when John was still alive. Maybe he's been influenced by Jewish teaching. Either way, Herod has a category for life after death. He knows the end of this life may not be final. And so he's worried about this. How are my actions gonna affect me? I'm feeling condemned for my past actions. And Herod takes the responsibility for his actions. John the Baptist, whom I beheaded, has come back. He's feeling the guilt of his actions, knowing that there's life after death, potential for life after death. John didn't actually, I mean, Herod did not actually do the beheading of John, but he knew he came from his command. He was responsible for it. He's wrestling with guilt for these wicked, evil actions like Scrooge and the ghosts of Christmas yet to come. There's a moral reckoning on Herod's mind. He's terrified. What has he done? What are the impacts it's going to have? And he's feeling condemned. This is what sin does. This is beautiful because it shows that the hearts, our hearts have the law of God written on them. We know what's right and we're wrong and we suppress it in our sin. Sin causes us to press down that truth and try to ignore it. We all have these thoughts accusing us that we try to defend against, but our hearts are not at rest from this condemnation until we find a solution, until we find a verdict declared not guilty. And King Herod's displaying this internal angst. John's been raised. Maybe, maybe he's feeling sorry for himself. I can't do anything, right? I tried to cut his head off. I didn't really want to cut his head off, but then I did because my wife and now he's got back. I can't get any break. It's like, well, Herod, you're not going to get any pity from us, right? So, so what, what he's doing is he's feeling this weight of condemnation for his actions but instead of responding rightly, of seeking for his guilt to be paid for, seeking solution in Jesus, he just presses it down and tries to ignore it, tries to disregard it. When you feel that weight of condemnation, when you feel that prick of sin in your heart, don't resist it. Don't double down in sin like Herod does. Because the, the very one that G, he's confused about is Jesus. We know that sin condemns, but when we look to Jesus, we see the one who came to take our condemnation upon himself. 
He takes our sins and the punishment that our sins deserve and the guilt that we deserve, the guilt that Herod's feeling right here, there is a solution and it's in Jesus Christ, but he will not turn to Jesus for the solution. All who are in Christ Jesus, as Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus bore the guilt and punishment our sins deserve. So sin confuses until we see Jesus rightly and it condemns us until we turn to Jesus in true faith. But the sinfulness of this situation is not done yet. Sin always seeks the worst. Sin always seeks the worst. And sin would love to kill. It confuses, it condemns, and sin kills. Look at verse 17. It was Herod who, had, Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now, Mark is doing a little flashback here to describe why Herod's so paranoid. So he tells the story of John's death. Remember, this is the current theme. This is what true discipleship is in the, in the midst of. And Herod's confused. He thinks that, all right, all these guys are going out. Jesus... John has been raised from the dead. Now we're getting into the meat of the story. And this is going to be messy. This is going to be a little hard to follow. So hang in there with me, okay? Just hang in there. Herod's wife was also his former half-brother's wife. His half-brother, King Herod, uh, Herod, was killed by his father, King Herod, for paranoia that his sons were going to overthrow the kingdom. And so Herod married his half-brother's wife before he was killed. And he hated John the Baptist, the wife did. She hated John the Baptist and wanted John dead. Why? Because John was saying, it's not lawful for you to marry your half-brother's wife. But this is messy, and this is disturbingly messy. So Herod the Great, who's the father of the Herod we're talking about, he's the one that tried to kill all the infants in Bethlehem to try to kill Jesus, which this isn't in the story, but it, doesn't that prove that sin kills our desires? Sin would have its worst and killed. And so now Herod's son is the Herod Antipas, one of his 10 sons, who's now the Tetrarch here of Galilee and Perea. And he's the focus of our story. This Herod Antipas wanted to marry Herodias, his half-brother's wife, but first he had to send away his current wife. And so he did, he sent her away, but she was the daughter of a king who would come back three years later and issue a crushing defeat on Herod Antipas. And that's not in this text either. But doesn't it show that sin kills? So Herod then marries Herodias, his half-brother's wife. But guess who Herodias also happens to be? Herod's niece from one of Herod's older brothers. I mean, insert puke emoji here. Like, this is just disgusting, isn't it? I, Levitical law forbid this outright, and John the Baptist, thundering John the Baptist, just calls him out. And Herod, Herod liked John the Baptist. I don't know why. He feared him. He knew he was a righteous man. And although he was perplexed when he heard him, he still heard him gladly. 
And I'm not sure that I've always found it, but there is a way to confront sin and keep the conversation open. I pray God would help us find that place as John did with Herod, although he was imprisoned. But Herod's in a tight spot. He loves John. His wife wants John dead. His wife Herodias seethed with enmity towards John the Baptist and Herodias loved her sin so deeply that it led to death. James 1, 14 and 15 says, each person when he's tempted is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Herodias, I think, loved her sin more than Herod. She was committed to killing a man so she could continue in her sin without the weight of judgment that John created. And eventually she seized her opportunity and had John killed. This, this unchecked sin for both Herodias and Herod will lead to death, the death of John and ultimately her death. Little pet sins can keep us from the kingdom. Unchecked sin will always seek the worst of its kind. And this is why Jesus gives such strict and strong affirmations. Hatred in your heart will lead to murder. Lust in your heart will lead to adultery. Cut it off, gouge it out, take sin seriously. The first sin in the garden brought death into the world. But Jesus loves us to the point of death on the cross to overthrow death itself. Sin kills, but Jesus will put death to death. So it's careless to play with sin and think consequences won't be far reaching. When our desires for sin are stirred, we entertain those desires rather than repent and believe in Jesus. Sin will bring forth death. It's always, it's always messy. Sin confuses, it condemns, it kills. It seeks the worst of its kind. And then sin splatters. Sin splatters. Just look at the gross immorality of this scene. This is a birthday party that Herod's throwing for himself. Look at verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So he's invited the elites. He's invited those respected, high in authority, power-hungry people. They're happy to benefit from a king who has self-serving generosity. Their pressure is high on Herod. And even though these elites don't say a word, they are there and their presence there will have a powerful influence. But they're there gorging themselves on food, drinking themselves drunk, all on the kingdom's dime. And it's like scenes from The Great Gatsby, if you've ever read it. It's just a constant scene of excess, abundance, over the top, overwhelming sinfulness, just splattering all around. And then as a father of five girls, what happens next grates me to no end. Herodias exploits her very daughter. Look at verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced... She pleased Herod and his guests. She's paraded before these men. From history, we know that this, is a, this girl's name is Salome. She's paraded before these men. She's objectified to no end. She dances in no uncertain way. 
She pleases them and these men objectify her. She's an object for their pleasure. She is to, supposed to be a woman to be protected and honored and cherished. And to make this worse, Herod is pleased by her dancing, the daughter of his half-brother and his current wife. He's pleased by this. Who's also his niece? Sin splatters. And Herod is so pleased that he makes a drunken vow. Look at verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask for me whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. So she, she's promised, Salome's promised up to half of her, his kingdom. And listen, Herod is not in his right mind. Nothing ever good comes when we're not sober-minded. Herod proves this here. He's just indulging in excessively in sin. And, and there's just so many great dangers here when you move out of your right mind. Gives occasion to the devil. The devil will pounce like a lion. He loves to see sin splatter. But Salome could have had a great deal of wealth given to her. It's, more, it's kind of an empty promise. He did not have the right to give away half his kingdom. Rome would have controlled that. But he could have given her great, a great deal of wealth. And so she runs to her mother, which does imply that there's some sort of coordinated effort here by Herodias. And Herodias uses her own daughter to her own evil ends. Sin splatters. She's shrewd, she's cunning, she exploits her daughter, exploits Herod's weakness and lack of character. She thought, my, my marriage is only safe with John if John is gone, and if he's killed. And so, that's what she tells her daughter to seek. So look at verses 25 and following. 24, she went out and said to her mother, what, what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me the, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. In the original language, there's suspense here. It's more like, I want you to give me on a platter at once the head of John the Baptist. In verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. What started as a birthday party ends in murder. The hardness of heart, grotesque evil, then of passing around, passing around a disembodied head. Doesn't it make your stomach churn? What an awful end to a wonderful life. What a terrible end of a birthday party. Herod regretted it. He was exceedingly sorry, but he loved sin more than righteousness. He feared man more than he feared God, and he went through with it. Look how much sin splatters. It's really easy to think that sin will only affect ourselves, but as a friend of mine once said, no one sins in a corner. No one sins in a corner. Our sins we found out, they will impact those around us, so confess them. Turn from your sin when you see them. Flee quickly to Jesus who warmly takes you in. 
He reminds you that he died for you to free you from sin. He will make your life an instrument of righteousness, not unrighteousness. Don't believe the, the lie that your sins don't splatter, don't impact those around you. They will always have far-reaching impact. Turn from sin quickly. Turn to Jesus quickly. But the story doesn't end here, and neither does John's life. John's life was just getting started. Sin will not have the last laugh because sin has an end. Look at verses 29 and 30. When the disciples heard of it, they came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. The only decency in this story is the disciples giving John an honorable burial. Herod would not have liked this. Herodias certainly would not have liked this. This is a risk John the Baptist's disciples were willing to take. Saul's mighty men worked all night to retrieve his body and his son's body so they might have an honorable burial. Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked if he could have Jesus's body for a proper burial. Today, we give memorial services for those who die, especially those who die in the Lord. Why do we do this? Because God is not done with the dead. He will raise them again to new life. To honor the body like these disciples do is to display the hope that the Lord will someday raise this body again. The Lord will someday bring this body to glory. And that reality is that sin and discipleship coexist in this life and the realities of death are ever before us, but death is not final. Sin has an end. Amidst this story of excessive wickedness the apostles are out sharing the kingdom and the kingdom's advancing. And this shapes our realities for the world we face when we go in Jesus' name. Think of how much differently this birthday would look if Jesus was king. Think of how much life and joy and peace and harmony that would have been seen in this party if Jesus was their king. What a gift to know Jesus and have him restore our lives and free us from such wicked, de devastating, destructive consequences of sin. God will do amazing things through us as we go in Jesus' name. But sin does abound all around us. And when we see the awful nature of this story, allow it to drive you to Jesus and then long for others to know this Jesus who can restore life. Sin confuses, but Jesus clarifies Sin condemns, but Jesus justifies. Sin kills, but Jesus gives life. Sin splatters, but Jesus cleanses. Sin leads to death, but Jesus conquers sin and grants eternal life. Sin tears at our conscience. Jesus brings peace to our conscience. Sin mars the image of God, but Jesus restores God's image in us. Sin breaks relationships. Jesus restores relationships. Sin offends the holy God. Jesus pleases the Lord. Sin grieves the spirit of God working in you. Jesus fills you with his spirit and empowers you. Sin hardens your heart. Jesus softens your heart by his word and by his spirit. Sin is destructive. Jesus makes us whole. Let the horror of this story show you the sinfulness of sin and turn your eyes to Jesus who can save you from this sin. And may we pursue a sinful world with the hope of Christ because our hearts are stirred with compassion for those who, apart from Jesus, will experience awfulness of sin. And it's not outside 
of this extent of sin that people will experience. I talked to a brother this week who was experiencing similar things to what happened in this very story. So let's link arms together. Let's resist sin together. Let's look to Jesus and invite others to do the same. I'm gonna pray. We're gonna turn our hearts to the Lord in song and in the Lord's Supper where we take Jesus in by faith. Let's pray. Great God and Father, thank you again. Thank you for saving us from our sin. Thank you for awakening us to the great evils of sin and showing us the beauty of a life restored by you, Lord Jesus. Lord, restore in us, we pray. Restore in us righteousness. Restore in us the image of God that we so desperately need. Lord, save us from the devastating, destructive consequences of sin and empower us, Lord Jesus, to look to you and receive you every moment of every day. And as we partake by faith of this bread that reminds us of your body and this juice that reminds us of your blood, that you died for us, that we might be made new and be made right with an eternal God. Lord, as we confess our sin and remember your sacrifice, restore us and renew us again, Lord, to pursue you with a whole heart, to devote ourselves to good works, to reflect your character and your goodness in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, form your very image in us, we pray in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.